consider uh, our church before the Lord. And the title of the psalm this morning is, or the title of the sermon rather, is When Evil Prevails. It's a psalm of Asaph. And before we read the text, I want to open with prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would be exalted in our midst. Father, we pray that you would be magnified today. And God, that through this psalmist and his cry of lamentation, you might touch our hearts and our minds. Father, that you might teach us how to grieve as he does, how to respond to you, how to be a people of faith, how to walk in a way that uh, that actually would fill our lives with great joy and satisfaction of your presence. And so now, Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, I want us to see that God is faithful even when we fail to comprehend his plan of salvation. That is to say that no matter what is going on, what kind of evil is prevailing or what chaos is happening around us, we can trust as believers, as those who are uh, repentant believers and followers of Christ, we can trust that God in His sovereignty, even as uh, Pastor West shared a moment ago, that even God, that God in His sovereignty is in control and He's over all things and that nothing actually surprises Him. I had to wrestle deeply with this this week as Fadi uh, was sent back to Palestine and thinking, God, this couldn't have been what you ask us to walk with Fadi for the last year and a half and his family for was so that he would be sent back to Palestine. And I had to wrestle through just struggling with these deep emotions and uh, struggling over feeling grieved that, um, that he was sent back into Palestinian custody. But in the midst of dealing with our grief, what the psalmist shows us is that we can, we can come before God with that grief. God's big enough. He can handle the real and raw emotion that his people have. And we see that evidenced and modeled for us in the psalm. But you know, when we think about this idea of evil prevailing, we don't have to think long or hard to find examples in our culture where evil has prevailed do we? Unfortunately, the reality is we don't have to think long or hard to find examples of where evil, evil is prevailing within the church either. But the commentary of our culture isn't, to me, isn't as grievous as the ineffectiveness of the church within the culture that we live. Within the church, we hear of moral failures. We hear of church splits We hear of racism. We hear of selfish agendas. We see and hear errant theology preached. We see a permissiveness of sin where sin is tolerated. We see materialism gone awry. We see a lack of zeal for worshiping Christ. We see spiritually anemic and evangelistically timid Christians. And so I think as we approach this psalm and consider maybe the state of the church... The Western church, by many accounts, has much to learn. I think we see in the Western church, we see the apathetic 
nature of the church, even toward an eroding culture that surrounds the church. And so as I look kind of at the big picture, the big C church, so to speak, we see the really decline of the church, especially in the West. And I think it's for this reason, and it's here that the church can make application of this truth in this psalm to our own lives. A study of psalms invites us into the human emotion. And it provides us with a realistic picture of God's people responding to Him in all of life's circumstances. And in this psalm of communal lament, we glimpse the emotional turmoil of the faith community. The Babylonian exile of 587 had left God's people feeling abandoned and betrayed. God was nowhere to be found. They felt like they had been rejected. The people of Israel felt like they had been rejected. In fact, they they asked, How long, O God, will you cast us off forever? Both Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. And the psalmist, while lamenting their present situation, because it was chaotic and it was disorderly, he cries out to God. Most of Israel had been deported. The temple lay in ruins. And God had left Jerusalem. He had abandoned His people. I want to read Psalm 74 and invite you to follow along. My hope is that we can feel just a little bit of the weight of what the psalmist feels this morning. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers, bringing it to the ground, or broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire, verse 7. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. 
You gave him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs of the brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this. Oh, Lord, how the enemy scoffs. And the foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For in the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. I think in order to understand the way forward, In the midst of chaos, we need to feel the weight of the faith community's dire and desperate situation. How do we respond when things are falling apart all around us and God seems to be absent? What do we do when we feel like our prayers aren't heard? And though we cry out with increasing anguish and increasing grief, God remains silent. You ever been there? This is the struggle of the psalmist in this psalm. I think we can learn much from this psalmist as he relates to God in the midst of this chaos and the prevailing of evil and the enemy. And so first this morning we note that the godly grieve over the devastating consequences of sin. We see this in verses 1 through 11. For 800 years, God patiently endured with the sins of his covenant people. He repeatedly sent prophets to them, calling for their repentance and and their return to covenant faithfulness. And yet, like a stiff-necked people, they rebelled and rejected God. Ever wonder where continual rebellion and rejection of God take us? There are consequences of sin that the psalmist realizes here in Psalm 74, and that primarily is the Babylonian exile. God has destroyed, allowed the temple to be destroyed, and Jerusalem has been ransacked and overrun, and all of the people have been deported. I think there's one point, though, that we need to note as we venture into this psalm, and that is that it's difficult for us as Western readers, I think, to separate the nationalism from, of Israel as a people for God in their relationship with God, from the nationalism of the country in which we live, America, and the church's relationship with God. Israel was a unique nation. They were God's chosen people. He had set His divine favor upon them and blessed them as a nation above all other nations. The right understanding of this psalm, I think it speaks to the church today as God's holy nation, as a people for God's own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 says this. 
And so as we seek to apply God's word this morning, we have to resist the urge to parallel our country with Israel under the old covenant, and we need to apply God's word to the church, the big C church. So in verse 1, he states their deep grief before God. Do you see that? He feels as though their situation is permanent. Oh, God, why have you cast us off forever? There's a permanency to his prayer. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? In other words, why is your anger continuing to smolder against your people? He identifies the people as the sheep of his pasture. It's tender language. God, we belong to you. We're part of your covenant people. That's this, this, this wording for sheep, identifying themselves as God's people. But then also pasture. This is the land that God had brought his people to. And so they're saying, God, we've been abandoned. You've abandoned your land. And it's been a long time since the exile first happened. What's going on? Where are you at? He cries for mercy in verse 2. Remember your congregation, which you've, you've purchased of old. You've redeemed us, the, the, the congregation, to be the tribe of your heritage. Pictures of, of Egypt come to mind as God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. He says, oh God, remember your dwelling place on Mount Zion. Don't forget of that holy habitation, the place where you made your presence known and your glory dwelt among your people. Where are you? He invites God to come and to walk around. You see that in verse 3? Come, God, see the perpetual ruins. Direct your steps. The enemy has leveled everything. Nothing is left. Your people have no place to worship you. Where can we even gather to come and to sing your praise? And in verses 4 through 8, he details the destruction of the place. Your foes, they have roared like wild beasts in the midst of the holy place. They have come in and they have roared triumphantly. And this has replaced the worship of your people. They set up their own signs with their pagan deities and pagan worship. They were like drunken barbarians going through the temple. They were swinging axes like men cutting down trees, and they were chopping down everything in sight, totally destroying it. All the carved wood, God, it's broken. They broke it with hatchets and hammers. And then... They set your sanctuary on fire. They burned it to the ground. They profaned the place where your holy name dwells. God, how can you let this happen? Is the essence of what he's saying. And he's grieving. They said to themselves with arrogance, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. But even though we see this destruction in verses 4 through 8, that's not the worst part of what the psalmist says. We see the worst part in verse 9. 
God is not there. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. The Ark of the Covenant, it's gone. The cherubim, where your glory would dwell, it's gone. The lampstands, gone. The altar, gone. It's all gone. All those things which pointed us to you, they've been removed. God's presence has completely left his people. He goes on. There's not even a prophet in the land. Your word is gone. And God, the worst part about this is none of us knows how long. When will you return? When will you have mercy on your people? The question of how long, it's a question of deep grief. It's as as if he's saying, God, where are you? Don't you see that your people are suffering? Have you forgotten us? How long will evil triumph and win the day? Will you allow the enemy to revile your name forever? And then with great grief and wanting for God's vindication, he cries out, why don't you take your right hand of power from your garment and slay the wicked? Evil had run rampant. And the consequences of sin were grievous to the psalmist. He grieved because God's power and God's protection and God's provision had been withdrawn from their midst. And they couldn't see God acting on behalf of his people. Well, this was the situation that the psalmist felt as he looked over the ruins of the temple. The challenge I want to bring to our attention this morning is I want to ask you, do you you grieve when you see with increasing number people scoffing at God and reviling God's name? Do we grieve like the psalmist grieves? When we see the decline of the church and corruption from within, from the prosperity theology to gay theology? Do do we grieve over the state of the church? When there are so many nominal Christians living powerless lives and, and bloated church roles across our land, do we grieve over the lack of God's power in our churches? When we struggle personally with besetting sin and and fail to walk in victory, do we grieve at the darkness in our own hearts? Or do we walk around in apathy, turning a blind eye to God's mission in the world? Have we grown so presumptuous as to think the church will survive? Because after all, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, church, the ploys of our enemy, Satan, are many. And the apathy of the church in the West, even in Baton Rouge, ought to grieve his godly ones. I'm not suggesting this morning that we can manipulate God any more than the psalmist thought that he could manipulate God. 
but I'm challenging us as a local church, as a local congregation, to be broken and to be humbled like the psalmist was broken and humbled over the state of God's people. We are the bride of Christ, and as such, we ought to be zealous to declare the glory and fame of Christ, our husband, to the world. Just as the psalmist grieved over, listen, the trashing and the destruction of God's earthly dwelling, so, church, we ought to be grieved over the trashing and decline of God's earthly dwelling, His church, His people. second thing we need to note this morning is the godly trust in God's salvation as sovereign king and creator. Grieving must give way to believing in God who is king, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so he moves from grief to great confidence in God's sovereign command. And if grieve describes the psalmist in verses 1 through 11, then we might say believe describes him in verses 12 through 17. And in verse 12, he confesses his faith in God. He says, you are my king, yet God, my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. In other words, he's saying and declaring, he's confessing he, that God is the shaper and maker of history. He's the sovereign ruler. And he contrasts the devastation that's wrought in verses 4 through 8 with God's creative and sovereign work, his mighty deeds in the past in verses 13 through 17. In verse 13, he speaks of God's redemption and deliverance through Exodus, and he calls to mind these images of God's sovereignty over creation. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. He speaks to God's redemption and God's deliverance. He speaks of God's sovereignty over creation. The sea in Hebrew poetry, it represents disorder and and chaos and evil and all that is wrong. And what he's saying is that God has conquered the sea monster. And it's God's victory over evil. And this is in direct contrast to the Babylonian worship practices and cultic beliefs. The great sea monster Leviathan represented the power of evil ruling the chaos. And according to the Babylonian creation epic, the god Marduk conquered the chaos of the waters and defeated the sea monsters. But here's what the psalmist is saying. Get this, in the midst of Babylonian captivity, he's rejecting their God. And he's saying, you're not a God of mythology, but you're a God of reality. And he's saying, you are the God who holds the power over all the earth. You are the God who actually provided food for your children in the wilderness. And you did it at the expense of the great sea monster. Verse 14, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Speaking of their exodus and their wilderness wandering. Speaking of how God is such a, a gracious and good provider. And in verses 15 through 17, he says, You rule the waters. You rule the day and the night. You open the springs and the brooks and you also dry up. You provide water and you dry up the water. You've established the heavenly lights. You've put the sun and the moon in place, the stars. 
Then he goes on to say, you've even fixed the boundaries of the earth. Even the seasons are under your control. You are the sovereign king over the earth and you work salvation for your people. Verse 12, you work salvation in the midst of the earth. You are this sovereign, powerful, saving God. You're the God who restores boundaries. You're the God who restores order and works salvation out of this chaos. And he's saying you alone are the God who can defeat the enemy. And so the psalmist here is saying, I believe that God has the power as sovereign king to reestablish those boundaries which were broken to restore the order of the chaos that has been brought into the nation of Israel. He has the power to conquer evil and defeat his enemy is what the psalmist is saying. And this is the hope of the church. That God has the power to conquer the enemy. And that God has in fact conquered Satan, our enemy. Similar language is used in Revelation 12 where Satan is pictured as the great dragon with seven heads, the many-headed dragon who with his many angels were cast out of heaven. And the New Testament goes on to describe Satan in this way, saying that he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour, and that he's a deceiver of the whole world. And in Ephesians 2, it says that he's the prince of the power of the air and that he deceives. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that, that he is the God of this world and that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But here's the reality. Satan was defeated by Christ at the cross. And when he shed his blood for the forgiveness of man's sin, he brought victory to all who profess faith and believe upon Christ And even though Satan brought chaos and disorder into the world through sin, Christ has restored the boundaries and order of life by defeating and triumphing over sin. And so when evil seems to prevail, church, we have this great hope in Christ, our Redeemer, who has worked salvation on our behalf. And so when darkness and sin seek to rule in our hearts, we turn to the God of our salvation like the great hymn of faith that we sang, on Christ the solid rock I stand, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Right? As we sang this morning, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Like the psalmist, when we can't see God's hand in the midst of our circumstances, Let us come boldly before God, remembering how he has worked salvation on our behalf. And let us not doubt that God is faithful even when we can't see, even when we fail to comprehend his plan. God is still faithful. The third note I want us to see this morning is the godly hope in God's covenant faithfulness. We see this in verses 18 through 23. Through grieving over sin's destruction, the godly are brought low in brokenness and brought low in humility. In fact, two times in verses 19 and 21, the psalmist identifies the community as the poor. 
Do not forget, in verse 19, do not forget the life of your poor forever. Verse 21, let the poor and needy praise your name. This is similar to Jesus' affirming words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He pleads with God to remember his people. Verse 19, he says, don't deliver the dove. Don't deliver your dove, the soul of your dove, to wild beasts. In other words, don't allow us to be ravaged forever. Redeem us. And in verse 20, he cast his hope on God's covenant. He knows that God is faithful. And he knows that God will remain faithful. Maybe that's, we just pause for a moment. Maybe that's where you need to rest this morning. Is knowing and understanding that God is faithful. That he's always faithful to his people. He always keeps his word. And so in verse 20, when the psalmist cast his hope upon God, he, he cast his hope upon God's covenant. He calls on God to arise and to take action against the foolish who scoff all day long in verses 22 and 23. Those whose clamor, he says, rises up against you continuously. And his argument is by doing this, God will once again allow his covenant people to praise his name. He's saying, God, if you keep your wrath on Israel, you're going to continue to hear the noise of the nations. But if you turn your wrath to them and free Israel, we're going to be freed now to praise you. So the psalmist calls on God to act for his namesake. But here's the beauty and reality of what God has done. Instead of turning his wrath on the nations, he turned his wrath on the one who came as the true Israel, Christ his son. He turned his wrath on the one who is the hope of all nations. He's the one who came to restore creation and to reconcile man to God. Jesus is the answer to the psalmist's hope in God's covenant faithfulness. Just as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. Jesus Christ fulfilled God's covenant with the Old Testament Israel. And he made a new covenant that he sealed with his blood. And so the great hope of the believer, the great hope of the church, is that God will, in fact, restore his church and we too will praise him. And so our grieving and our prayer is rooted, must be rooted in God's purpose for the church, in proclaiming Christ to the nations, in living out the mission that God has called us to. The new covenant that Christ made with His blood gives us ultimate hope and ultimate victory over sin, over death, over Satan, our enemy. So believer, I want to ask you this morning, how do you respond when evil prevails? What must we do When evil comes, I think according to the psalmist, we must grieve over sin's destructive power 
and its consequences. And through our brokenness and through our humility and through our repentance, we, we turn to God by faith, believing that he is the sovereign king over all of creation and that he has worked salvation in Christ. And we hope in him through prayer, asking him, begging him, pleading with him to restore the church so she, the church, is powerful to accomplish God's work in the world. And through this, we seek to live holy and righteous lives for God's glory. This morning, if you've never believed upon Christ, you can confess him as Lord and you can confess him as supreme king over your life. And through prayer, repent of your sin, seek his forgiveness, and trust in his salvation through Christ. If that describes you this morning, as we turn to the Lord in a moment here, I want to invite you to pray a prayer of faith, trusting God, surrendering your life to him, and then come and to speak with me about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation. But church, let us heed And learn from the example of the psalmist who would grieve deeply over the destruction of the nation and over the situation and circumstances of a nation who had fallen in God's judgment. And let us grieve over the state of the church and cry out to God that he would raise the church up to make an impact in this community and among the nations for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we turn our hearts to you in prayer this morning, we come confessing that it's even difficult for us to grasp the depth of the psalmist's cry and his grief and his plea before you. But Lord, we also come asking that you would grip our own hearts with this need and desire to walk in holiness, that you would grip our own hearts with pleading for your body and pleading for one another, pleading for our lives to be sold out unto you, pleading, Father, that we would be men and women who are, uh, who are zealous for your name to be made known and for your worship to be made known. We ask, Holy Father, that you would be exalted this morning in the hearts of those maybe who find themselves in the past scoffing at you, rejecting you. And we pray, God, that you would have your way and be victorious even in their life over the power of the enemy. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.